Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. I'm super excited. It's uh, episode 379 and I'm joined with my friend Chloe Wingu. And Chloe was scheduled for a few weeks ago and she had to have an emergency trip um, out of the country and then she's back. And so I'm and it just fits in perfect. So I'm really excited. We were talking a little bit of before about what you do because it is so different. And we're going to get into that a lot. But if you are somebody, if you're listening in and you're somebody who often says, oh, you know what? I help clients communicate better with their customers or, you know, and that is what we do. That's what we do. We, we have to understand those customers. And one of the things that um, Chloe's going to talk to us today is about being that mediator between the customer and your, and the, the client and their customers. And mm-hmm. I also think about it when we've talked before, she gets so passionate. I can't wait. <laughs> um, but it's also about just being, um, really getting being an advocate for those customers and making sure that the company that you the company is doing what the customers are needing or communicating in a way that is what they need so you have a very amazing background it is not a normal design I drew until I was you know from age five no. to whatever you may have done that but <laughs> I think it's what gives you such a unique advantage. So I want you to give everybody a little bit of your background um, from where you started, how you started in design and what you focus on now. Because it didn't really start in design. Design was kind of a later added yeah. thing, right? Yeah. So um, I got a design kind of accidentally, actually. Um, so in college, I had a job as something called a resident computer consultant. It was like a student computer consultant, um, cause I was a tech nerd. This had nothing to do with my degree, by the way, this is just like a parallel thing. And, um, in my senior year, I ended up becoming that department's career services liaison. And as a result of that, I ended up needing to do a lot of design work, you know, for students who were graduating who needed information or students who were coming in who needed information. They needed like pamphlets and graphics and things so that they understood technologically what they needed to do. Um, And so that was really my first foray into design. And then after undergrad and grad school, you just become that young person at the nonprofit. And that young person is always the one who's asked to do social media and graphics and tech stuff. If even if you're not, you know, technologically inclined and I was, so that's really how I got into design. Um, And then I liked coding because I was a nerd. So I I built websites for fun. Um, Yeah. So that's, (laughs) That's how I got into design. (laughs) But then you went on, you got your master's in something also that was not design related, correct? (laughs) So tell them about that. Yeah. So um, I went to Israel (laughs) and I got my master's in international conflict resolution and mediation. Yeah. (laughs) And so I, I was essentially trained to sort of help facilitate discussions and conflicts at like a country's level. So like between countries or between countries and um, smaller actors, I'm going to get jargony when I start talking about it. But yeah, so that's what I went to grad school for. Because why? What was the passion behind that? (laughs) Yeah. So it started with a passion of wanting to use 
an understanding of different cultures and different peoples and like what makes people tick and what motivates people using that in a way to sort of make the world a better place I know that's kind of cliche but like that was really what was in my heart and I considered going like the diplomacy route but then I realized that okay, as a diplomat, you are an advocate, you are not a neutral party. And so what happens in, you know, in the off case that you're asked to do something that morally you cannot agree to, as an advocate, you still have to do that thing. And so when I had that sort of moral quandary, I was like, okay, so like, what's to the left of that? Um, and I just- that was pretty far in your in your um you were almost done with your you were in your last kind of phase right yeah 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 exactly which is why it was like what do I do and so which takes um, a lot of courage to change at the end like right you know like that that's that's saying I'm going to do what's right one that you had that moral compass to say oh this doesn't make sense I can't I don't feel like I can do this and then you just had the courage to like after all these years of studying and working it's like I'm changing course like you really listen to your heart which I think is really amazing go ahead keep going courage girl thank you (laughs) thank you and so um so that's how I got into mediation and then um I guess if I want to like fast forward to how I actually ended up starting my own studio agency type situation, um, I ended up after grad school working at a huge nonprofit doing a lot of crisis management and like anti-bias work. And where Um, are you? So in the country, you're in America. Where are you? You're in Northeast, right? I am in the Northeast. Yes. Currently I'm in Connecticut, but I was sort of all over the Northeast and then also through work all over the world. So mm, um, lots of different places. Um, But I ended up working for a huge nonprofit and loved the work, loved my team, loved the people that I, you know, um, that reported to me, um, but ran into some other morally questionable things um, that sort of made me reconsider my role. Um, and, um, eventually I left and a friend of mine who ran her own agency was like, so you create websites for free for nonprofits. You should just have them pay you. And I was like, oh, did you not realize that that was people were paying and this was something that was so oftentimes this is what I think is great. Oftentimes we discount the thing that comes so natural or is fun to us. So for me, it's talking to people and getting (laughs) to know them for you. It was making websites, right? (laughs) Um, But we often just do it and we're like, oh, but it doesn't take me very long. I don't think that anybody would value that. Was that the kind of the, the, you're like hadn't thought about it. You knew people did it, but you. Yeah. Like I just, it just never occurred to me to charge, right? Like the folks that I, <laughs> the folks that I worked for were like these small nonprofits who like really needed more visibility and like, mm. you know, like it was, it, it felt like the right thing to do. And like these causes were really important. So I was just like, sure, I'll build you a website. It's so easy. Why not? Um, and so when my friend was like, charge for it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. 
<laughs> so she took me into her company um, to sort of help me get the ropes to like what see What was her that. company? Was it a branding company? What, what was Yeah, it? so she, she does, she's like a full spectrum agency, right? So she does branding, web design, um, brand strategy, like all of these different things. Um, and so she took me in as sort of a junior person so that I could understand the mechanics of how to run that sort of business and the things that happen on the back end. And I built my business as I was doing that. So it was really, <laughs> really generous of her. She was amazing. And we're like very close friends till this day. Um, and so that's how Novi Works was born. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, and so now Novi Works, I've sort of transitioned from websites. I do take on select um, design projects, but I've sort of transitioned into um, how would I describe this? Sort of evidence-based brand strategy and creative direction, maybe I think is the is probably the best way to put that. So, so oftentimes we do, we transition from what we were maybe currently doing to see, we see a bigger hole or we see a hole that we, we can fill. And that mm -hmm. was something when we've had conversations before, it's just like, wow, I hadn't thought about this. And you're like bringing it from that other perspective, which I think is really mm -hmm. unique. So Paul also, Paul's from Minnesota at cool. Minneapolis. And my hey. mom would say Minneapolis and she's here. Oh. So she'll say happy birthday. His birthday is this week. So, but he oh, was, birthday. he uh, got his PhD in physics. So, but then on the side, he did design, would design, you know, all kinds of things. So it was very similar, but <laughs> I think that you and you know it's the the things that you're designing and then you realize you he he loves books he's a book designer and so it's the mm. same thing for you now you realize hey there's this bigger gap there's this bigger hole i want to yeah. make sure that this is being and and you saw that there aren't a lot of people doing this so i'm gonna um so what services are you providing now and who do you normally serve yeah, so right now, um, I have sort of like a <laughs> proprietary process that I've created, but but really it is sort of um, hyper-specific brand strategy um, and then sort of evidence-based design, right? So, so what I is evidence-based design? For my mom, what does that mean? Yeah, so it means that when I am making design decisions for a client, I'm basing it off of a whole bunch of different kinds of data. Um, so I'm, I'm not only using my own sort of aesthetic sensibilities or even what my client enjoys, um, I'm looking at a whole bunch of other things. So you're also looking to see what those their customers or their clients are going to react to not or exactly. what's going to stand out in the in that group instead of and I think sometimes that's what we could be um, missing. And I think that this also kind of goes to Paul with his book design as well, because sometimes the author may have an idea about a book or a publisher may have an idea, but it's to an audience that they haven't reached before. Say it's a, um, uh, I don't know, photography book and they normally do, you know, uh, text you know, yeah. have base books. So it's like a new audience. So Paul would understand because he would go in and, and kind of do the same thing you're doing. You're thinking, yeah. Hey, well, we need to make sure that we're, you're not just going to, you know, shove it down their throat the same way you would <laughs> do for a text based book. You know, it's going yeah. to, everything that goes into it, the cover has to be different. The inside has oh. to be designed different. So it's the same thing for you. You're, t but a lot of times we 
think we know who our client is and we might yeah. not know who our client is. Yes, right? And that's yes. where that evidence base comes in. And that's, that's yes. a lot of marketing, right? That comes in and yeah. you're proving it. So then it's, it's not so subjective. It kind of brings that. Um, I find a lot of times in design, I was having to try to prove what and my client mm. would want. Well, I don't like purple, but that's what right. is best for your audience. It's going to stand out or whatever. Right. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so I like, I, I don't want to take like the, 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 the art and the warmth and the woo out of design. Right. Because like it, it very much that's part of it and, and instincts and, and right. artistry are a huge part of it, but there's also, you want to be the right kind of subjective. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Like it's not going to be ever completely objective, right. but you want it be, to be the right kind of subjective. And so that's sort of what I specialize in. Okay. Well, I can't wait to learn more. So this is the next <laughs> question, which is going to lead you into what you're going to teach us. You call yourself a brand scientist, which I yep. love this. And I haven't <laughs> ever heard anybody use that. Um, can you explain that? And are you going to explain that in your deck? And if you are, you want to start sharing your deck and then we can yeah. jump in. That'd be great. Oh, okay. That I was not expecting it to move like that, but okay. <laughs> so can everyone see, is it full screen for everybody? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, uh oh, oh my, this is very cool. I didn't, intend for it to be like this at all. Um, okay, so um, actually before I even touch on this question, um, I think it's important for me to establish what I consider a brand, brand building and branding to be, especially from, because I do this from a scientific perspective. So when I look at brand as a brand scientist, what I'm seeing is a, system of ideas that influences people. So I know a lot of people are sort of familiar probably with the Marty Neumeier definition of it's what people think about you when you're not in the room, et cetera, right? But that's not really something that I can um, quantify. <laughs> Um, that's something that's, that's a lot harder evidence, to quantify. Right? Yeah, so exactly. Not, like you, it's not something you can track. It's it, it, it's harder to track, and it's they're they're picking the right levers for it mm. systematically is a lot harder. And so, from my perspective, um, I sort of shifted that definition to something that I could more easily manipulate by pushing the right buttons, as it were. And so for me, that definition is it's a system of ideas that influences people, super simple. And then that means that when we come to brand building, we've got something that's a strategic, but also ongoing process of creating memories for people to recall. That's really what it is at the end of the day. And if you have questions about this, if I'm being too vague, please let me know. No, that's great. But that, yeah. those are normal words that I can understand, you know, somebody just coming in. That is a great way of saying, I love that. So creating memories for people. People to recall. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so then when it comes to branding, right, the, the actual communication of that system of ideas, um, what you're doing is you're creating assets, brand assets that are memorable. Mm. That's it. <laughs> and so that's, that's what these things are from my perspective as a brand scientist, um, that I want my clients to be remembered 
in the right context. And recognizable, um, right? Yes, so exactly. those would be two things I think that are, you, cause I think that sometimes as I teach students and people, we just finished, you know, our senior thesis. And I think students get, they're like, oh, well now it's boring. And I'm like, it should feel boring to you if you've worked on something for 16 weeks. Yes. <laughs> it, you shouldn't be changing what the collateral looks like from the, uh, it should look like if I go to a store and I see it, I'm, I recognize that as that. But I love that you want to also make it memorable. And I, yeah. I anyway, keep going. Keep going. Love this. <laughs> and before before I keep going, actually, because memorable, when I say memorable, I have a very specific thing in mind. I'm thinking about the way that the brain works and how mm-hmm. our memories are sort of set up within a network of memory, right? So when I say memorable, I mean it's stored in the right part of the memory. It's easy to withdraw from that part of the memory, um, which requires a, a whole slew of things, but it's it's in the right part of the memory and it's easy to withdraw. That's that's sort of what I mean mechanically when I say memorable. So, um, okay. So, um, here are some of the things that I consider then when I begin the process of branding. So that's the visual communication and other forms of communication of a brand. Um, So this (laughs) is something that I call a source logic mix, but really it's just a fancy term for sort of um, a source understanding, maybe I should say. What does Um, that mean? So source. Yeah. So, okay. So I think the best way I can describe it is like this, right? So everything has a source code, right? So for a website, it's the literal code. (laughs) For human beings, it's DNA, right? And so brands have a source code. And so what source logic does is it sort of sets order to that code. So it's, it's digestible so you can use it um, so you can understand it and you can read it. Um, And so when I say a source logic mix, what I'm doing is I'm talking about the different kinds of information that after I sort of set order to that source code, I now have access to and I now understand. So I hope that's clear. If there that is. Please ask. Um, so these are just some of the things when I'm when I'm thinking about branding. So like visual assets, for example, I'm thinking about larger, You're so larger. Smart. Oh I'm, my gosh. <laughs> anyway, keep going. Larger cultural. I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Keep going. So I'm thinking about larger cultural considerations, right? So like, is this a Western culture? Are we in like a small island country, right? Things like that. And I'm looking at the cultural perspective um, when it comes to visual language and like sort of what, how to situate something within that cultural context. Um, I'm looking at industry expectations. Um, and this is going to be very important because once I, when I go on to this next thing right here, oh, wait, industry what landscape. Was, what was oh, no, no, don't worry. Industry? I'm going back. Okay. I'm, going I'm back. like, oh no, I've, I didn't get the last one written down. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. No, I, I, I wanted to bring this up because I wanted to um, make things a little less ambiguous, right? So you see here, I, it says industry landscape. And back here, it says industry expectations, right? Mm -hmm. So the two things are different and this is how. Industry expectations is always from the perspective of my client's stakeholders or customers. So what is my client's customer expecting to see when they look at my client's industry or vertical? Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when I say industry expectations. And then of course there are psychographic preferences and that's for the stakeholders 
and for my client, right? So this is where I sort of take in the preference of my client um, because that's important. I'd say if I'm going to break it down to a number, it's like 15 or 16% of the equation Mm -hmm. is what my client cares about, what they want to see and their preferences and their likes. Um, So yeah, that's the source logic mix. This is just, you know, one of the things that I consider. And then we have the industry landscape, right? And this is just a fancy way to say that I look at the industry as a whole and I take special note of outliers. So those who are leading the pack and those who are sort of like offbeat and interesting um, because it sort of gives me a um, almost like a, a, how do I describe it? like the texture of the of the weaving, if that makes sense. If, if, if the industry were a tapestry, looking at it in this way gets me a really granular, um, tactile understanding of what I'm looking at. Um, and we, you wanna make this as complete <laughs> um, and as exhausted as the budget allows. So, so are that's these, one. Are, do you see the leaders and the outliers as opposites? Sometimes. Sometimes I do. Um, it really does depend on the on the situation, right? Okay. So sometimes the offbeat outliers, as I call them, are sort of niche industry favorites or best kept secrets who are doing very well within, you know, within a, a specific target demographic, right? They're not necessarily someone that folks would call a leader because when they say leader, they mean someone who has um, super high brand equity. I'm now using more terms, so I'll explain what I mean when I say that. So when I say brand equity, I mean um, like an Apple or an Amazon, right? Like someone who has really, really big market share. So that's generally what people mean when they say leader. And if you just focus on the leader, you're missing out on all these really interesting expressions of the same thing within the industry. So that's why I make special note of of, uh, keeping an eye on both of those. I love that, okay. Yeah, so those are just some of the things that I consider specifically for visual communication. I'm not even talking about the whole gamut of branding or the whole gamut of brand building or brand. Just visual communication, these are some of the things that I consider. Um, And so when you consider those things, what you get is something that is industry aware, but also distinct. Um, That's my favorite saying. about my work. I'm also pretentiously quoting myself. So that's why there's nobody there. It's it's me. There's nobody um, in the byline underneath. Um, And so when something is industry aware, right, like it looks like it belongs, but it's also distinct. That's how you create visual assets, at least specifically, that are memorable, Mm -hmm. which is the whole point of it, right? So everything comes full circle. The reason that this is important, right? And I wanna read this carefully because the wording is very important. Is because the only way that a system of ideas, remember this is how we define brand, can be influential. The only way that a system of ideas can be influential is if it is communicated in a way that is at the very least memorable, right? It's sort of like a minimum viable Mm-hmm. situation going on. So if you want your system of ideas to influence people, at the very least, the way you communicate it needs to be memorable. Mm. So that's why as a brand scientist, that's sort of my my approach to branding. And that's why I consider all of those different variables, well, some of those variables and more, of course. To give sort of more perspective on um, 
the sort of methodologies that I use when I'm doing my work. There are a lot of them, right? Um, there's um, consumer insights, there's psychology, there's behavioral science, right? Like in modernity, as a brand scientist, I have a lot of fields and methodologies and tools at my disposal to make sure that I can create assets, um, strategies, and a brand that is as influential as possible, something that's neuro-rich, something that's going to sit in the right part of the memory network, be easy to recall, like all of these good things. Um, I've got you, these amazing tools. Do you do a lot of studying that's on the, the brain and memory? Is that I, some of the I do. Yes, I do. Though <laughs> I did have a little bit of a, um, a background in sort of neuroscience and social psychology, because that was sort of the way that I wanted to approach um, my practice. So like I sort of started in undergrad with the grounding in that and then continued in grad school. So that was sort of always my the lens that I looked at um, my work through. And so so, yes, the the, the, the short answer is yes. Um, okay. <laughs> And so the thing about that though, is because all of those tools are sort of utilizing these cognitive biases that we're pretty sure all human beings have. Um, and because we're leveraging those cognitive biases to, to influence, right? To influence behavior, we've got to be really careful about that work from an ethical and an equity mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and as a side note, I do wanna say that ethics and equity, it's not just important because I'm a brand scientist, as a strategist and as a designer, I think that this is this is something that's important for all strategists and all designers. And not just because I'm like really all gung ho about equity. The reason for that is this, right? That as designers and as strategists, we are gatekeepers to the ideas that are going to shape the future. I mean, I'll, I'll ask a question like, have you ever seen a status quo establishing idea that wasn't strategic, that wasn't well designed, that wasn't all the things that as designers and strategists, we facilitate for our customers? The answer is probably no. And so are we the only gatekeepers? No, but we are key gatekeepers. And so that's why I think it's super important for us to be thinking about the work that we do from an ethics and an equity perspective. And so when I do that, here are some of the questions that I ask myself. Um, the first question is, what kind of future am I equipping my clients to build? Mm. And this is a really important one for me, frankly, because the folks that I, I tend to work with are folks who are looking to shape the future, are folks who are looking to shift our status quo towards something that is less poisonous. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's something that's near and dear to my heart. But because of our role as gatekeepers, I think that this is a question we all really need to be asking ourselves, mm. that if our clients' visions were to obtain, right? If they were to get everything that they wanted, if they were to sell their product or their service at scale, and on top of that, the vision that was behind the creation of that product were to come true, would our society, would our status quo remain or would it shift towards something more positive? 
I, I have my own biases and my own perspectives as a woman of color, right? But I don't think it's super radical to say that our current status quo is not amazing. And so, <laughs> and so if our clients work is going to maintain the current status quo that we have, that's not good enough. Is that and, how you determine whether or not you are going to work with somebody if they're, if they don't have a deeper vision or a bigger, or if they're. So, yeah. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I think also the thing that I consider is the extent to which I can sort of help them shape mm. that kind of vision. Um, it's always great if someone comes to me and they have that vision, but if there, if, if there is room for me to sort of facilitate that, mm. then that's also the sort of person that I might take on. So is um, this, you also said something that I, I'm bringing up because this is not, and I think sometimes we think, oh, it's just branding. We're going to do it in the beginning and then it's done. But branding is an ongoing, and you said that this is an yeah. ongoing process that you're doing with your clients because yeah. just like we are, just like you pivoted as a um, a, des a web designer, now you're doing something else. Clients also do that same thing. They're they're mm -hmm. seeing a whole. They're seeing where they can, and it's not like they're just going to make this one widget for the rest of their lives, right? Yeah. So exactly. that's why this is an ongoing relationship process that you're continuously rechecking, right? So it's yeah, exactly. Anyway, I love that part because again, <laughs> it builds that long term relationship with those clients, and yeah. they see value because you're continually touching base with their stakeholders and their customers to make sure that everybody is that these that they're what they're wanting is getting the goals are being met and people yeah. are getting stronger, better, going exactly. beyond status quo. Okay, exactly, exactly, and and you know, like the status quo shifts and context shifts. So that's why every single company, every company that has like huge market share or brand equity, and I'm going back to like sort of the titans of the industry, every single one of them has an ongoing relationship with some sort of brand something, right? Because they have to tweak their image in a way mm -hmm. that maintains that core, but is still relevant within like the, the cultural context that they exist within, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, that's why it's an ongoing process. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I think some I think for us, we can take away and say, oh, as we're explaining branding to our clients, this is how we can con continue that relationship. And we can frame no. it from the very beginning that things will change. We need to assess things in a regular basis. Yeah. Okay, keep exactly. going, keep going. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the second question that I ask myself is the second one about how am I going about equipping my clients to build whatever this future happens to be? And this is sort of where the, the title of our talk um, comes in because I see myself, and again, it's definitely my background as a conflict mediator and a political mediator, which is something I still do, by the way, right? So like, it's definitely that background that comes into this, but I see my role um, as somebody who is facilitating a relationship between my client and their stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not on any one person's side. I am, I am the neutral-ish <laughs> party in between. Mm -hmm. And so what that means primarily for me, but it, it, mean, it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but primarily for me, 
What that includes is making sure that the relationship between my client and and their stakeholders remains one that's free of exploitation, one that's like healthy. Um, Sometimes people use stakeholders as people, other people at the table. So this would be a board of directors. Is that how you're thinking of stakeholders? Are you thinking of stakeholders as the, the user, the client, the customer? I'm the stakeholders. I use that term intentionally because it includes the customers, but it also includes a whole constellation of different people who might be involved. People on the team, right? Yeah, exactly. Internally, externally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I also use that term because sometimes, and I didn't answer this question that you asked before. So maybe now is the time to answer this, but like my clients kind of run the gamut, right? Mm -hmm. So I have clients who are in the private sector. Right. And so the primary stakeholder for them might be the customer. But I also have clients who are like refugee leaders, right, who are looking for more representation at the UN or a recent client I had a small island nation, you know, and like they don't necessarily have customers in the way that we consider them, but they do have stakeholders that they need to connect with. So that's why I use that term, because it's sort of all encompassing. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And so to get back to the point that I was talking about before, um, I know that exploitation can be sort of like a a big, scary word and it's a bit abstract. So so here's like a more concrete um, explanation of sort of what I mean. Right. Let's say my client has a one thousand dollar service or a product. Right. For obvious business reasons, they want to make sure that their customers can afford to buy that that product, right? But I see my role as ensuring that not only as ensuring not only that the customer can afford it, but that they can afford it in a safe way. Right. What does that mean afford it in a safe way? So that Yeah, not- so so what I mean by that is that if they go ahead and buy this $1,000 product, Mm -hmm. they're not going to be left in a dangerous situation. They are not going to be in a situation where like that $1,000 was, you know, the difference between them and their kid getting food or going to school or paying the rent money, right? Or mortgage or something like that. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. I gotcha. Right. And so, so I want to make sure that, if worst case scenario, the the product doesn't give the result that this person is hoping for, that they are not then going to be left in a dangerous situation. Mm. I see that as my role as mm. as a as a brand strategist, um, and also as a designer. Primarily as a brand strategist, but also as a designer, I see that as being my role. But that's really important because then you're not going to talk to those people that would be spending that thousand dollars. You're going to be talking to the people that if it doesn't work, it's because you didn't put the time. It Mm -hmm. wasn't that you didn't have the knowledge and you were thinking, Oh, if I just buy this gym membership, I'll get 30 pounds lighter. (laughs) No, you actually have to go to the gym. Right. And if you don't have time or you don't have the money for this, then this, then we aren't talking to those people that we end up refunding or we end up spending more man hours trying to uh, help them through so that they aren't so that they're not left out in the cold. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. And so, so like I am, I am as a brand scientist, I get to use all of these Jedi mind tricks to sort of make sure that 
we are in the right parts mm. of the memory mm. of a customer or stakeholder that is of the best fit, right? Best fit, I'm thinking of, do you guys remember math class where like you have the graph and there was like the curved line and like the, the line that was closest to it was the line of best fit, right? Like that's that's sort of how I think about it, right? I want the stakeholder that I am going to be influencing with my Jedi mind tricks to be somebody who I can do that with responsibly mm. and ethically. So that's sort of generally a very quick overview of like ethics and equity and how I think about that. Um, and, and keeping in mind that in that relationship between my customer and their stakeholders, that there's a social contract, even if it's unspoken, and I really see myself as someone who's sort of tending to that social contract and making sure that I'm I'm looking at the potential effects of my client in a systemic way and from different blind spots that they may not be aware they have. So um, I think, yes, I think that's it. I know that at some point you were going to ask me about tools. <laughs> For brand side. So I guess I can stop sharing. You could ask me more questions and then we well, can come back to this. Okay. Uh, or I can just ask that question uh, question now so that we sure. can, um, is this stuff, this is the question I think, is this mm -hmm. stuff that designers need to be incorporating into all their projects? And are these tools, is this something that a designer like me has access to and we could begin implementing and what would you recommend us starting with as we're developing this and and how much time does this take yeah yeah so the answer is yes absolutely right um i i am a a small business right i'm not yet a huge business i'm a small business so and all of the research and and data collecting and work that i do is always um budget aware, right? So I have to be aware of the budgets that my my clients have because that probably more than anything sort of dictates the extent to which I can go and explore and do research. Um, so I think that the tools that I have here are all tools that are relatively inexpensive mm -hmm. um, and they're really great places to start. Um, I think another great place to start is to befriend a researcher. That's not something that I included here, but like befriend a researcher. Maybe research is not your thing, right? So befriend well, that, somebody who Well, and who even does that. you, that's something that, <laughs> is that something that you would do if we had something? And, and when would you bring, when would um, another designer uh, bring you in because they know that this is, and, and is that something that you would even do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have um, relationships with a lot of designers. Because like I said, I take on select design projects, right? So they're not the bulk of my income or of the work that I do anymore. Really, the bulk of the work I do is that brand science, right? So it's the, it's the, I think it's looking at the, the stuff that we don't really understand. And we're trying to subjectively do it. But really, you're coming with facts, which it would be to me, it, it gives, I have more confidence in trying to defend what this purpose is or this position is for this yeah. brand because I have your science behind me. 
Exactly. exactly. Whether I do it myself or whether I pay you to do it or like get a friend that's a researcher. I don't yeah. know where these friend researchers live. <laughs> um, so uh, I was going to say the hangout on LinkedIn. Check out LinkedIn. There are lots of like quant and qualitative researchers. And like, that's how they label themselves. So like befriend people on LinkedIn. Qualitative, that is that what you said? You said yeah, what? qualitative and quantitative. So both. Okay. Um, are places that you want to look. And and to answer your question, like a designer would bring me in as they're putting the the brief that they want together. Like that's the that's really where I thrive. And that's why I say sort of brands evidence-based brand strategy and creative direction, right? I'm coming in and I'm saying, okay, so here are the most basic parts of what would make, let's say it's a, a graphic designer who's designing a logo system or a visual identity system, right? I would come in and say, based off of the research that I have done and based off of sort of the, the precise positioning that we've done, um, here are the building blocks of this visual identity that, you're, that you should build. And I've chosen these elements based off of research that I've done, based off of qualitative and quantitative research that I've done. Um, and so that way... Mm -hmm. Early in the process. We're not talking about, Early. I've already created these assets no. and then bring, bring Chloe on. <laughs> exactly. It really needs to be, again, it, it's with a budget, a client that has a budget that's a healthy budget. So mm -hmm. that would be us booking a call to see what that healthy budget is, right? But in yes. uh, time, it's not just money. It's also time because yeah. some of this takes time, right? So Exactly. What, uh, keep going. I'm sorry. And then yeah, tell us yeah. what kind of time it takes. Yeah. So the timeline. So for me, my my proprietary process that I mentioned before, um, it, it exists in three parts, right? So there's the first part that is establishing source logic, which we talked about initially before. And that takes a month. Um, and that really what that does is it's depends on sort of where the client is in terms of their journey. But like it's like I said, setting order to the potential chaos in their source code and making sure that everything is crystal clear so that I can then translate that source code into, or that source code and that source logic into visual language, right? If we're talking about a visual identity design, for example. You think often it's somebody that's a redesign? Is this more for established, not so much of a startup? Yeah, so it depends, right? Like I have gotten a lot of redesigns. I have also gotten a lot of folks who have had a business in their earlier life um, and mm -hmm. like sold that business or finished with that business, or maybe they worked a corporate job and now they're starting their own small thing, right? And so they are technically starting from scratch and starting a brand new thing, but they're not like fresh into the industry, right? They're not fresh into... Um, the, you know, the world of entrepreneurship, as it were. Mm. Um, now, does that mean that I can't work with people who are just starting? No, absolutely not. It just means that I have to probably do a little bit more research on my end um, because the, the understanding of the industry that that client will have won't necessarily be as robust. Okay. So that's all that means. It just means sort of a shift. Um, so yeah, that first part of the process is a month. Then the second part of the process, which I call design logic, which is where I sort of translate the source logic into um, design language, whether that's visual, whether that's systemic, right? Like there's a whole bunch of things that design can mean. Um, that also takes a month. And then there's the third part of my, um, my process, which is systems logic. And this is how we're going to use the system that we've, we've built 
strategically. And that's indefinitely. And, it could be. That's indefinitely. Right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So can you walk us through these tools here? Because then I just want to see your face bigger. Yeah. Okay. Sure. 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 So these are all great. A lot of them are free or cheaper. Um, so for example, right, if you want to do um, a survey of um, your client's target demographic or you know, target stakeholders, right? A really good, relatively inexpensive tool to use is uh, SurveyMonkey Audience. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can do something like, is it like 500 um, people for like $300 or something like that? Like it's really not crazy expensive. Now you have to write the questions yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so, so do a little bit of research into the best way to sort of phrase the question so that they're not leading or, you know, they get you the kind of data mm -hmm. that you're hoping for. Um, but this is a really, really great resource. And I suggest it to everybody who's sort of trying to start out in this. Um, another great one, especially if you're trying to get um, responses to visual language is usertesting.com. Um, and this is one that I think is pretty common, but like, pretty much just, you know, design your thing on Adobe XD and then like send the link and then people will respond to it um, on video or like whatever format that you would like. So this is one that's, it's really fun actually to see people sort of interacting <laughs> um, with your design or your design choices, right? But um, this one is a really good one and it's also relatively inexpensive. Last I checked, things may have shifted in the mm -hmm. year of our Lord 20, 20 to 2021 because things got a little a little cray cray so um <laughs> there's that um then there's google analytics which is whenever i get a client who eventually wants me to build a website for them to code a website for them and i said okay cool i will do that website for you and they're like one of those select few if they say that they have Google Analytics on their website, I like weep for joy because that just gives me so much information. It gives me so much data and it's free. People put Google Analytics in your website. <laughs> do it, do it. Even if you don't understand it, just do it, do it. Because someone, someone along the line is gonna come along and be doing work with you and they're gonna be thankful thankful for Google Analytics. Um, and there are lots of free courses or like inexpensive courses that can teach you how to understand Google Analytics. So like just 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 for for the folks like me that you want in your life, please, 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 please install Google Analytics on your website. Um, another set of great tools are sort of the hot jars and the full stories. And this is really to see how people are using your website like where they're pausing, where they seem to be having trouble. Or um, what they're skimming over, right? Exactly. If they just skimmed, or skimmed over something over. that was really important and they're just scrolling right past it. Because So this is where, if we're explaining it to my mom or somebody else that may not understand it, it's tracking. And I think hot jar you can do, there's free for a, a, yes. so many visits or something. Yep. And then you can see um, it is, you're, it's tracking your, your mouse movements, I mm -hmm. suppose, right? And yeah. from that, I'm assuming maybe the others sort of do that as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. So hot jar, full story, crazy egg, they all do sort of similar things. Um, and so it's, it's, it's tracking basically how folks are interacting with your, with your website. And so if like, like Diane said, if they skim over something and you're like, oh, this is, you can then say, oh, this is why when people get on a call with me, like they don't know what I do. Right. Mm. For example, if that's a problem that you're having, you can, you can sort of, figure out where those bottlenecks are with tools like that. And then Google Optimize is a great tool because it, it gives you a lot of data on um, your audience, especially if there are people who are on YouTube, for example. Hmm. Um, so like if you, if you have um, a client whose stakeholders are on YouTube a lot, right? Like they fit within YouTube's sort of traditional demographic and psychographic information. Google Optimize is such a good tool. Like, absolutely check that out. It does a bunch of other things as well, but that's primarily what I have it in my head for. So I know Hotjar has to be installed on your site. Is Google Optimize similar to that? You have just like Google Analytics, you have to put in like an API code or you have to do... Yeah, so they, I believe, am I remembering this correctly? It's okay, you can I, say you don't know. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I remember it's like it, it connects to the relevant Google account. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, I might, be I might be remembering a different Google tool. Who knows? I don't know. But no um, I'm pretty sure that is correct. I will come back and, and fix that if that is wrong at some point. Um, so that's sort of that stack of tools. Um, <clears throat> then we have social media and trust pilot. Um, social media is amazing for information, like behavioral information about mm -hmm. your client stakeholders. It's amazing. Mwah. It's so good. It's so good. Instagram is a great place, right? To sort of observe the ways in which people behave. Um, just make sure that it your um, client stakeholders are within the right um, demographic for Instagram usage, but like all of the major social media tools are interested in, in keeping good data because that's how they make their money with advertisers. Mm -hmm. So if, if you know where to look, you can find a, a gold mine of sort of behavioral information. Trustpilot is also super great because it just, you find out the things that annoy your clients stakeholders about similar products or services mm. <laughs> and so you can then go back to your client with that intel and help them sort of avoid those pitfalls so it's a great resource it's a thousand percent free to use <laughs> oh, nice. um oh i have google optimized here twice okay like twice as important, I guess. I know. That's what um, I was thinking. That's why I wanted to make sure I asked. I wrote um, it down twice. <laughs> oh my gosh. And what remains here are two books that were really formative for me in terms of developing my perspective as a brand scientist, um, using semiotics in marketing. And I'm, I feel terrible because I'm about to forget the author's name. So I'm going to google it really quickly because i know the author and i met her when she launched this book and she's amazing um using semiotics no worries <laughs> rachel That's laws there we go rachel laws so rachel laws she's a consumer psychologist she's i think considered like one of the founders of 
semiotics and marketing, like th that as a field, she's like the, one of the founders of this. And this is an incredible book. It's like a step-by-step -step guide for doing really robust semiotic analysis. So like, it's great. Definitely consider giving this a purchase. L-A-W-S, is that her? L-A-W-E-S. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the final book here um, is Building Distinctive Brand Assets. And this is um, from Rami Romanuk. I'm not going to pronounce their name correctly, but if I'll if find you, it and put it yeah. in the, in the yes. show notes. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, and so this person, um, they work. Um, so if you've heard of the book, How Brands Grow, mm -hmm. right? So it's the same institute. It's like a the Southern Wales Institute of like evidence-based marketing or like something like this. And they're set in a university. And when this book came out, how brands, how brands grow, it like turned the entire marketing world on its head and everyone's like, no, what? So what the author has done has sort of broken down some of the things that I was talking about earlier with like the human memory network and how to, how the human memory network works and how to make sure that your your assets are distinct enough to sort of work with the way that memory works. Um, a lot of those insights I gathered while I was reading this book, like I sort of collated them as I was reading this book. So this is a really great resource. And so that's it. So, so yay. So if you stop helpful. sharing, then that way yeah. I have a, a five more minutes to ask you a couple questions. Okay, so, great. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. That was so long. No, oh. no, that was fantastic. <laughs> I asked you lots of questions in between. So I try, I try not to go so crazy on my questions, but I also like to make sure that if anybody has questions as well, but literally I have built up my entire piece of paper front and back. Uh, I oh literally was like, oh my gosh, I gotta have, I gotta write this down. It is really <laughs> So I'm super excited, but I knew it was going to be like that. That's what I do. It's usually like when me and you are uh, on a call, but now Fair. I actually had visuals to write it down. I wasn't just having to, to go back on my ears. So <laughs> why, I just want to ask some, maybe this is a hard question. Maybe this isn't, but why is creating deeper customer personas? Cause this is something that we've talked about mm -hmm. as well, me and you, um, necessary to this design process to, to ensure that there is equity, that there's power, that there's, yeah. uh, can you kind of go into that? Cause it's not yeah. just like, oh, it's Joe. He does <laughs> blah, blah. Right. Right. This is, so this is, I love this question. Um, and I love consumer, um, profiles. I love these consumers actually kind of a gross word. So I'm going to say customer profiles. Customer profiles, stakeholder okay. profiles. Okay. Um, yes. So I, I love these and this is why not only is it not this is Joe. He has a wife and three kids and he works in a button, button factory, factory, right? Like it, not only is it not just that, right? But it's also my gateway to research, right? So like, this is how I figure out who I am trying to watch the behaviors of, right? And who I'm trying to connect with, right? So that's one thing. And what that also allows me to do, I know I mentioned this earlier, is that this then lets me see who exists around this person. Mm. And that lets me consider the impact of my clients on a systemic level, right? So I get to see, okay, if like, how do I describe this? So, so, so maybe the best way to describe this is to give you another question that I tend to ask myself, right? So when I look at my client's product or service or their vision, 
I ask myself, okay, who is going to be in the worst case scenario, who's going to be disadvantaged by this? Mm. Um, and so when I have a really robust customer profile, that lets me answer that question in a systemic way, because I can look at this customer, this profile, and I can look at all the people around them and all the people around those people. Um, there's actually like a recent article that came out, like a behavioral science article that came out um, and they described this sort of network as like a social penumbra, right? So it lets me sort of see this social penumbra and then that What's lets a penumbra? Me... Holy moly, girl, oh, you yeah. use your words, I don't even know what that's like. Love that, so a penumbra is sort of like, almost like an umbrella. <laughs> I think visually that's the best way that I can describe it, but it's like a part of a shadow. But anyway, yeah, it's like, it's kind of like an umbrella almost. So like, um, yes. <laughs> oh, hello, Nat, hi. Um, so, so it lets me sort of look at this entire social network of people and it allows me to analyze at a systemic level um, the impact that this is potentially going to have. And so that's why robust profiles are so, so, so important. It's one of the many reasons, but like from, from my perspective as a brand scientist and as someone who's interested and concerned about ethics and equity, that's one of the most important reasons. Yeah. Mm, okay, so I have to ask one other question. Uh, <laughs> so, so a lot of these studies done by big marketing firms, right? Mm. So and I'm just being honest, it scares me because I'm like, mm, I don't think I can, I don't even know how to have some of those conversations. I don't think I have clients that are coming in, but mm -hmm. I do understand the value of this. I, and I feel like there's something missing out. So it, mm -hmm. it does allow me to, to um, charge more, but if I don't no. really understand what goes into it, so I'm glad I kind of understand the time frame, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but so it, I think this stuff would scare me out of even a even trying to get that as a client, right? Mm. Because I wouldn't, I would know I would need this. I don't know how to do this. So I think that this is great. I'm glad that you're a resource that I can use because this sounds like stuff I would love to work, know, but I don't yeah. want to do all the, I don't, <laughs> I want to um, have the awesome beach body, but I don't really want to go <laughs> to the gym and uh, get all sweaty, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm saying. I do really find it interesting, but I know that there's, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of work. I mean, it's, it is, I love people. So, but why is this step so critical? And maybe I'm thinking about it in correct way. Can mm -hmm. these users, um, user studies be smaller and maybe not as extensive as what I'm thinking? Is that something yeah. that I could use for a smaller budget and what yeah. would be smaller to you? Like, yeah, yeah. So it definitely is. I think the only thing that um, you want to take into consideration is that the results might be less. Um, how do I describe this? Um, less authoritative, maybe, is, is the best way to say that. You don't right? have as big of a you don't have as big of a, a sample size, right? And so, but that's always going to be the case, right? Um, like with anything that's smaller than like a statistically significant sort of what situation, What is statistically right? significant? That's like a tongue right, so that, but I did it, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. So that oh. means basically that the sample size of the research that you're doing is big enough that like you can extrapolate it to the larger population. So what, um, but what is that? What is that number? A 10%? Or? Oh gosh. Um, it depends on the, the thing you're trying to research. Oh my goodness, I don't even know how to answer that question. It depends on the thing that you're trying to research. 
But I, I, I would say, I would say for a client that has a smaller budget, you are not looking to create a study that is, that has statistically significant results, right? Like you are not trying to do that. You are just trying to get another perspective. Just think of it as, um, I think of it and I talk about it as triangulation, right? So you have your client who has a a very specific perspective. Then you have you with your own expert perspective. And then this research, this um, user testing gives you a third sort of pinpoint or, or perspective point that you can then use to hone in on what the right thing is. And so I've described it this way before um, somewhere else. And um, anyway, but like, essentially it is like, when you're starting with some sort of project, you have like this entire scape of like possibilities. It's like literally everything is an option. And so what you want to do is figure out a way to triangulate it so that you find out something that's like within the 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 right realm of reason, right? Like everything within this shape right here is correct. Um, Like you can't go wrong with anything in here. And to do this, you need you need data points, right? And so triangulation is important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then is so smaller budgets, it it can work. Um, um, I guess so it's time if people have enough time. Mm -hmm. So um, at least a month to get that first round done. And then you would start working, right? So this is not somebody who's like, hey, I got to have this next week. Yeah. Yeah. If someone's like, can we, can we do this in a couple of weeks? That's going to be a problem right? Um, because you need to not only gather the data, but you also need to clean the data. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that you need to do. However, yes, this is something that you can do with smaller budgets. Um, just make sure that you use the information in the right way and using it as like that third data point is, is super helpful. So, so, in, so I, just to reiterate, this is something that would be helpful to designers so that they have more authority is what yeah. you call it and power mm-hmm. for their, the users, the end users. And yeah. you're coming at it from a, a stronger point as you're uh, ex- explaining it to your, you're able to make better decisions also yeah. is one of the main things that's going to reach those people. Again, it's doing yeah. that hard work up front, but maybe this is something that if you are like me and this doesn't, I mean, it, I would like the information without having to do the hard work. Um, this is something that would be a great, a great collaboration. And that's why I think that there are more, there's enough business for all of us. And yes. this is where we really need to be a team because then this is something that Chloe's really amazing at <laughs> and not something that I really want to do, but I know that it would really help me make better decisions. Yeah. And, uh, and, and- at the end of the day, that's what it's about, right? Like, mm-hmm. can you imagine, like, having a client meeting and they're sort of like, I don't know how I feel about this purple, even though, to be fair, that has not happened to me a lot since using this process. So, like, I want to point that out that, like, I don't have many revision rounds in the work that I do because of this process. So that's one thing that's amazing. Um, but let's say that you are in one of those many client meetings and the client's like, I'm not sure I feel about this color. Why are we using this color? Like, can you imagine being able to say, well, this color tested very well with, you know, like the particular demographic that you are, you know, that we're trying to reach or, um, 
remember we talked the, about this, right? You yes. talked about this in a specific client situation exactly. and they were like, well, I don't really like these. And you're like, but these work for your customer. It exactly. doesn't about if you like it, it's about yeah. if it reaches them. And, yeah. and that's the way it is with words, the words we use, the mm-hmm. spacing we use, how you set up a store, it yeah. needs to be able to, so all of that stuff comes in to play. And that's where it's, again, it's like, oh, okay, so you really don't care about your user. It's really just about you <laughs> with your own store. You just want it right. to look like what you want it to look like. It doesn't matter if it's useful for them, right? I was thinking about in, in women's bathrooms. Now I am five one, so I am not the tallest person, right? So I, I always know when somebody tall, probably, uh, me, probably me. Anyway, really has hung up the the hand dryer or the towel holder, and all the water from washing oh. my hands is running down my hands because I have to reach up, right? And so now it looks like I'm sweating profusely because I have not dripped dry long enough. But if somebody I know again, this is a user experience, right? Yeah. So yeah. women are most small or uh, shorter than men, right? And they're hanging <laughs> it at eye level or, or even a mirror. You know, I remember yeah. John hung a mirror and I was like, um, am I supposed to see something besides my forehead in this? <laughs> right. You know, um, I just think about those things and I, but the, the, and John's not that much taller than me and he probably just did that um, to be funny, but but I think about it a lot with when mm-hmm. I go into a bathroom and I'm sure they're like, well, it just looked better spatially above the thing. And I, I understand that it's not about how it looks. It's right. about how for, it, for whom, for right. whom that's the thing. It looks better for whom, right? There's always sort of like a, a, um, a default perspective when we're talking about things that look better. Um, and like, I, I think, like I've mentioned before, part of the work that, we as designers and strategists need to be doing is like investigating okay but like whose perspective is that and who is informing our perspectives too right like who are we consuming as sort of experts because if they all look the same then i don't know yeah yeah so uh paul's given us a sample size calculator that i will have to click on in a minute because i (gasps) close all my things that is awesome so I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit paste so that you guys can make sure that you are following and connect with Chloe. And, um, she, ha- so her, I did ask her how to say her last name and I'm pretty sure I did. Okay. Right. You did very Wendu, well. Right. Yes. So, but it's, if you're listening, it starts with an N W A G N W A N G. Yeah. W U. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I knew you would know what it was, right? <laughs> and I knew I know what it is when I'm writing it. So anyway, but it's Nobi, N-O-B-I works mm-hmm. with yes. an S dot com. And then if you follow her on Instagram and then also on LinkedIn and all the links are underneath. So make sure you check it out. Um, check her out, connect with her. And I mean, she is full. Uh, I have way more questions, so we'll have to do a part two. But we thank you so much for just like literally filling my (laughs) paper. I can't write any smaller and I didn't want to write where the other questions were because I want to know where I have to come back to. (laughs) So just to make sure everybody knows. So Nobi works, N-O-B-I works, Mm -hmm. W-O-R-K-S dot com. Mm -hmm. And it's on Instagram, Nobi works and on LinkedIn. So check, check out Chloe. And I hope that you 
I hope you'll come back and do a part two for us, Chloe. I really appreciate it. I'd be delighted. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Um, I hope folks found this useful and helpful. And if you have questions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram. I'm pretty responsive there. And I post about stuff like this all the time and like research that I'm finding and how to apply it to things. So if that sounds interesting to you, then check me out. So yeah. I love it. And just to <laughs> let you guys know, I have changed the dates for camp to be like it was last year. So it now will be June 28th through July 31st. So it's five weeks to spend um, with me and a bunch of other people learning. And I hope that you guys will think about it and tickets will go on sale, special tickle price, tickle, tickle price, not a tickle price. That'd be inappropriate and uh, not uh, okay with COVID six. My little arms are not six foot long, but um, it is, will go on sale probably uh, May 25th, May 28th is when those early bird tickets. And if you're on this list, if you're not on the list, there will be a code um, for you to get that um, early bird price. So I, I'm going to, and just also, if you're into mindset stuff, check out Mario's um, mindset reboot. So if you are like me and struggle at all with self-doubt or negative self-talk, or you are trying to get forward into things, you may really, um, really enjoy this five-day conference. And it's all about mindset and there it's all virtual, but there is, places where you can come in and um, do some stuff together. So if you want, you can go to bit.ly, bit.ly. Um, I have the link somewhere, but I can't find it right now, of course, because oh. Oh, here it is, bit.ly, bit.ly slash mindset reboot 2021. So check it out if you are interested. Um, I'd love to see you there and learn alongside you because I'm going to be there learning too, because I think we all struggle, especially as we're doing new things um, and sometimes our biggest enemy is the one inside our brain that is um, attacking us when telling us that we can't do things, right? And I think that it's really important that we have our, our people, like our friends, to help us alongside so that we're not in a hole alone. And uh, I hope that you guys will check it out. Uh, you can go to Mindset Reboot um, if you go to that bit.ly uh, mindset reboot 2021 and you'll be able to check it out and get more information if you're if you're not ready but it starts on may 24th may 24th through to the 28th and it's my friend mario quesada who's amazing so i can't wait for you guys to and he'll be at camp too starting us up at my camp okay that's it i'm gonna hit stop record and i will see you guys next week next week super excited we have ashwin chaco um on and i of course moved all the stuff so that I did had more clear space on my desk. And now, of course, I can't find his little book, but it's amazing, super cute little book, and it'll be in front of me. But he's an illustrator, and he um, has some workshops that he does as well. He's has amazing um, story, and I can't wait for you guys to... He's passionate about people as well. So lots of people, people. So I can't wait to have him on. So we will see you guys next week with Ashwin. Okay. Bye.